Welcome to First Coat, where we explore public realm art, how it's made, and why it matters. I'm your host, Stephanie Eche, an artist and entrepreneur based in Brooklyn, New York. I run Distill Creative, where I curate and produce site-specific art projects for real estate developers. I focus on creating more equitable and inclusive projects, and I want to get more exposure for the artists and developers doing this work. This week on First Coat, we have Amina Cooper. Amina is a curator, public arts consultant, and public art policy strategist and founder of Amewa Fine Art. She has over a decade of experience working with fine art and public art collections for leading municipalities, museums, and galleries in Washington, D.C. and Boston, Massachusetts. She currently manages over $3 million in large-scale public art projects as a public art consultant. She is also the inaugural Forecast Change Lab Research Fellow and initiated a broad survey of Black public art. She created and runs the Instagram account Black Monuments. In this episode, we talk about how to create more equity in the public art space and learn from Amina's experience leading large-scale public art projects. Here's our conversation. Welcome to First Coat. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, Um, and thank you so much for having me. My name is Amina. I am originally from Atlanta, Georgia, and I am a public art consultant and fine art advisor. Um, and I have my own practice. It's called Amewa Fine Arts. And what I do for clients is help them manage the, the project management piece of uh, coordinating a public art project. Uh, but I additionally work with individuals and groups that are interested in either um, acquiring a collection of either public or fine art and also to manage that collection once they've established it. That sounds awesome. It's right up our, our alley. <laughs> How would you define art in public space? That's a great question. And I think that that definition is one that has evolved over time. In my view, public art is any expression, any artistic, cultural, creative expression in the public realm, outdoors or in community spaces that is created either in partnership or in dialogue with community or with the community or landscape as a consideration. And I think for a long time, we've typically thought of that as bronze sculptures or or whatever major stainless steel piece that your city commissioned in the 70s in front of City Hall. But I think the definition has expanded and broadened, thankfully, to include, you know, all types of materials and media and also work that's not permanent, that's temporary and works and processes that don't typically yield anything tangible. So that's, it's a really exciting time to be in the field. In an interview you did with engaging local government leaders, you talked a lot about growing up near an airport and how that was your first experience of public art. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so it's it's so interesting now that I'm, you know, my primary client right now is uh, an airport in Charlotte. You know, my mother retired from Delta Airlines, and I think she started working there the year that I was born and worked there for 20 years. So one of the perks of being, you know, a dependent of somebody that works for an airlines is typically you get to fly for free or at a significantly reduced cost. So, you know, I've been flying for as long as I remember, um, and I've had the great fortune of being well, being able to travel all across the world. So my earliest memories of public art is going through the old old terminals at Hartsfield. And there was this neon work by uh, Stephen Atanakis. And so as you're going through security, you go down these stairs that take you onto a train that will take you to the terminals. There's these beautiful neon, super 80s style neon artworks. And I just remember them catching my eye 
And every time I traveled, just looking forward to seeing them because it, it just was, it was sighted at such a location in the airport where you knew if you saw them, you were getting ready to start your journey. Um, so I'll, you know, and unfortunately they deinstalled those works that make way for advertising, <laughs> which is just, it's, you know, that's what happens. But that, that was my earliest memory of public art without really recognizing that it was public art. How did you first start doing work in public space? Uh, it was interesting and it was, you know, uh, kind of a struggle to, to sort of get to this role, which is a role that I've always wanted. I've always wanted to work in the arts, but in a more broadly accessible capacity. Um, I studied fine arts and photography at Howard University and journalism. And I originally thought that I would be this really cool fine art photographer. And then I interned with a commercial uh, commercial photographer and that just totally killed all of the joy that I had for it. So I said, okay, I need to work on the other end and be an administrator. So I went to Boston University, got an arts management degree and ended up working uh, after a couple of roles at a local arts agency. And my background uh, in journalism caused me to come into roles managing communications and also doing grant writing. So I fell into this role as a grant writer and a fundraiser. I was working um, with my organization to try to acquire one of the NEAR town grants. Hmm. And just that process of gathering information, interviewing community, gathering documents, researching, putting together a proposal specifically around a public art project in an underserved, sort of historically neglected part of the state caused me to have more of an understanding of public art. And I think it helped put me on the radar of our CEO. So by the time we got our grant, the, the former public arts manager transitioned out of the organization and she was like, is this something that you would want to do? And I was like, absolutely. I've been waiting for you to ask me that. So that's how I came into public art. I started managing the collection that the county had acquired since the 70s. So it's this really broad collection of outdoor sculpture, but also work on paper, works on paper that had been in the city buildings and county buildings that I was responsible for. Uh, managing and figuring out our, the next steps for. Would you say you do a lot of research based on whatever project you're working on, or do you depend on research that you had as an undergrad? What's the continued learning life like for you? Honestly, I would say the learning that occurred for me at Howard and at Boston University, particularly around nonprofit management, is just, it's so integral to the work that I do now, because a lot of public art management is understanding budgets, understanding the structures of how businesses and, and nonprofit enterprises work, understanding city funding, county funding, and, and basic accounting. And then, you know, my background sort of studying to be this fine artist helped me really work better with artists today, because I understand sort of their concerns, their fears, their capacities. And I, I just, I, I feel like I communicate better with artists because I have training as a artist. What's the role of photography in both preparing a, a public art project and also in assessing the project? You know, I don't think so much that my, like I, I know that I use my photography degree. Generally it comes into play when I'm evaluating portfolios or I'm thinking about how we want to document work. But it, it was just really sort of the broad training that I had studying fine arts. And at Howard, you had like, I had a, a photo degree, but I was studying ceramics and silk screening and all of those things. And I think that that's primarily the main thing that helped me work with artists in this role, because it's really 
being able to work with an artist and then your client group and then trying to find like a bridge between those two very different, sometimes very different styles of communication and then hierarchy of, of needs. <laughs> How do you approach curating for art in public space? Well, for me, you know, I, the, the public art, it, that the word public is just first and foremost. So I try to take a, a backseat and really think about what the needs of the community are and what the needs of the client are and figure out how we can meet both of those needs. And then also to address needs and concerns that maybe haven't been articulated or weren't even understood as needs or concerns. Um, generally what we, you know, a sort of a best practice for the field is to create either a panel or a group of decision makers and policy makers that represent both sort of artistic expertise, but also are composed of folks that are actually in the community. So when we're looking and evaluating artists, we have the perspective of, of community members saying, hey, this is what we need. We would love to see this. You know, we're super drawn to that. And then you also have client representation saying, okay, yes, this would work. We can we can get behind this. And, and then you're starting that communication and that dialogue that really has to sort of play out throughout the entire process of commissioning you know, the installation. And then, you know, generally once we've selected an artist based on community input, client input, and then our expertise as the administrators, we still go back to a community-oriented process where hopefully the artist that you've selected and we bring on board is able to either have meetings, community meetings, charrettes, however that process looks like for them. And luckily artists are so, they're just, the brilliance is that they're able to do that in a really new, unique way. So either, you know, sometimes they'll create art with community and then learn about community interests and communities that way. But the idea and the hope is that they're able to integrate those community voices into the final product without really sort of impinging on what the artist's uh, desires are. And then my role as a public art administrator, as a project manager, is to make sure that the artist has the support that they need, that the community voice is not lost throughout their creative process, and then I also generally like in, in thinking about curating public space, I like to think about who's not represented and how we can best complement and make comprehensive, you know, that work that is then creating a body of work. You know, you're you're adding to an existing collection. So I'm thinking, what materials haven't we seen? Which community neighborhoods have not had work cited? So then we might focus on that community. We might focus on a particular culture or community neighborhood that really hasn't had an opportunity to see themselves reflected. So those are the primary considerations, but as you can see, there are a, myri a myriad of considerations, but for me, community, the residents, the people that have to live in that space are the primary. And how do you assess which communities haven't been represented or haven't been seen in, in the public art or in, yeah, art in general? <laughs> yeah, a lot of that is, that's where the data and the collection and the research comes in. I had the good fortune really sort of at the start of my career in public art, managing a collection and working with the great consultants that, you know, did assessments of the collection. So in order to say, okay, this is what we should do. You have to really look at the collection as it is and say, okay, this is what, this is where we've installed work. This is the, the term, the period of time in which we've created these works. This is the, the majority of material that we've used. And then just in terms, in the same way that you'll look at sort of funding and see, you'll see patterns in funding, which communities, which organizations have gotten funding over a period of time. It's the same way with public art. If you have records that you can rely upon. And even if you don't have records, you could just go out 
into the community and see like, okay, well, we, we have a lot of works in this, in this urban center, in this downtown area, but these, you know, rural communities often you'll see deserts. So it's a combination of looking at your records, great collection management practices, but then also just, you know, footwork, just going out into the community and seeing what exists and, you know, where the, the disparities are. How do you keep track of all of this? Is there a system that you use? Does it depend on the client? It, it, it depends on the client and agency. I've been able to work at, at organizations that had collection management systems. So in the same way that you would have a database or, you know, honestly, sometimes it's even just an Excel spreadsheet, unfortunately. Other times it's more robust database systems where you can track when work is created, when it's installed, who the artist is. In the same way that museums have systems that track work, because that, that's the way that you know, you know, you're able to track maintenance, you know, when maintenance needs will pop up, when when a work is due for conservation, because generally that's on a on a time cycle. So you're you have to have really robust um, or just any sort of system to help manage that because you know these works they're not inexpensive generally and it's an investment and you want to be able to take care of your, your investment over time in your blog post how public art programs can join the movement against police brutality white supremacy and anti-black racism in american arts you wrote it is time to talk about the lack of diversity within our public art commissions artist selection panels and other public artist workforce we need to address the elitism which we, with which we dictate to communities which artworks are acceptable and which persons and cultures are worth affirming with monuments and beautiful objects. And I'll put that link in the show notes so everybody can actually read the article because it's a great article. Um, how do you think art programs, public art programs and private funders can better support artists and organizations who are outside of those that have been historically funded? Yeah. That is a great question. <laughs> and as, you know, somebody that works in public art, but is also really sort of sees herself as, you know, a policy strategist, I'm continually, continuously asking myself that question and, you know, looking for best practices and answers. But what I can say is that that is, you know, something that we have to continue to ask ourselves. I think the benchmark, the, the very basic thing that we should do that we still have not done is to sort of break up the, the homogenousness of our field because it's difficult to bring in and accept different viewpoints and perspectives when there's, you know, one sort of solid voice in charge of sort of the ecosystem that is our field. So when you look at the field of public art administrators, I believe it's almost 80% white and female. Similarly, in art, you know, because it's a marriage between urban designers, urban planners, architects, artists, government policymakers, and there's not enough diversity within those particular fields. So there is just a lack of, one, there's racial bias. There's a lack of understanding of how to even deal with diverse communities in order to integrate them. And there's this sort of a narrowness in terms of what we perceive as excellent or even our own sort of modes of aesthetic sensibility. It's very narrow. So until we're at the point where at those tables, making those decisions and selecting artists and then, you know, just selecting which neighborhoods get funding, more like the communities <laughs> that they're serving, we're not, we're not going to get there. So I, I, for me, I feel like that's, that is what we need to do is really just address how to, you know, combat issues of racial bias, making sure that our fields and our workforces are more culturally and racially diverse. Once we do that, we'll be able to take on other 
other sort of micro strategies around, you know, best ways to engage in community outreach and best ways to support artists. Because right now, those strategies are, they're not really great. (laughs) To put it mildly, like there, we just have so much work to do and integrating new voices intergenerational voices, multicultural voices into this field, for me, is a top priority. How do you influence that when you're working on a project? Well, one of the things that I've tried to do at the really, at the beginning of, you know, we have funding, we want to create art, what should we do? Is making sure that, you know, the artist selection committee, the, you know, the boards, in a sense, are diverse. So if I'm an administrator on a project, what I'll do is say, okay, listen, and I honestly, it'll be like, okay, we have a couple of African-Americans from the neighborhood where this work is going to go. We have some Latino voices. We have some LGBTQ voices. We have some, you know, voices that represent Western and European traditions. How do, is, do we have a table that looks like our communities? And it's just, it's such, it's easier to work from there. And if that's something that you can't do as an administrator, you know, another strategy that I've I've done partnership with uh, another leader that I worked with is saying, hey, this board is 100% white. <laughs> you know, staff is the are the only persons of color at this table. So we need to we need to create new policies. And those policies included ensuring that the the board was culturally diverse. And that meant that the people who were on that board had to leave. So, you know, sometimes you have to really just go into, you have to write the rules <laughs> in order to, because a lot of, a lot of the time, these organizations and, and entities are operating under practices that were created many, many moons ago, many years ago, when, you know, the concept of cultural or racial equity was just sort of like this far-flung theory that nobody cared about. You know, a lot of organizations are, uh, operating under these policies that haven't really been revisited since the 70s, since the 60s. So that's always a really great place to start for me as somebody that works in policy and strategic planning is to say, hey, do you have guidelines, do you have policies, and is it time to revisit them? So taking a look at the foundation of the organization. Absolutely. Backwards before you can go forward. Exactly. You know, because a lot of the times, you know, the culture and the values are, you know, they come out of these strategic planning documents, these mission statements, these value statements. And until you sort of realign that, you're not going to see those outcomes that, you know, will produce more equitable outcomes for communities. It seems like there's a, I don't want to call it a trend, but it does seem a little bit like a trend of organizations trying to be more equitable or being more diverse and having an outside consultant come in and like fix everything. How do you think that's been going or what have you seen just generally with with that? You know, I, I feel like that is, it's a process that a lot of organizations need to go through. But I think before anything like that can be successful, it takes one strong leadership at the organization and, and from the ED or the director to your volunteers, to your board of directors. So if there is not a will there, then you need to change your leadership and and then recompose your board until that is a value because you can bring in a consultant all day to create best you know best practices and to create recommendations but if the will isn't there and it's it's generally or it's just you know a thing that we we were going to say that we do so that we can get this funds 
you know, because we know that grant, you know, grantors are are funding these initiatives, it's not, it's not going to be successful. It's going to be a waste of time. Mm-hmm. How would you define equity in public art? Um, that's a great question. You know, for me, you know, I just I think about my experiences managing collections and seeing these same artists in the records as having executed these works across across decades. Equity in public art means that everybody in the community has an opportunity, one, to engage with art in the public realm. So, you know, we're not just creating these pockets where we're only placing public art in white affluent neighborhoods. It means that every neighborhood gets to have public art in their community. And it also means that artists that are, you know, non-white, that are multi-generational, you know, from different schools, different backgrounds, are able to participate in the process as artists, as community members who get to choose and select art, you know, that everybody is a part of that ecosystem and that the people who live in those communities get to see themselves in their values, in their desires and aspirations reflected in the art community. So for me, that is what equity is, that everybody is, you know, appropriately represented at the table. Are you an artist? Submit your portfolio at distillcreative.com slash artist. You'll get on our Distill directory, our artist database, and be considered for upcoming art commissions. Are there any places, whether that's a city or a town or an organization that you think are doing this well? Well, for one, I will say that a lot of times we live with public art and we don't recognize that it's public art. (laughs) So, you know, I, I love seeing art in part but I also love seeing art in transit. And I guess I'm biased because I'm, you know, I've been working with an airport for a while, but I, I feel like those sort of unlikely places are where you're gonna see really cool examples of public art. You know, I love, uh, and I also love sort of this integration of art where people are working and living and playing. You know, I'm born and raised in Atlanta, so just I'm biased, but I love the work that they're doing at the Atlanta Beltline where, you know, people can eat and sip and drink and bike ride and, and there's artwork that, that's across all budgets that they can see and enjoy. I love the work that they're doing at LaGuardia Airport. I mean, you know, I've, I just really love beautiful monumental works by diverse artists. But I also, I'm really increasingly interested in sort of this idea of social practice. I am a longtime fan of Rick Lowe and the work that they're doing with uh, at Project Row Houses in Houston. I love that model of saying, hey, you know, we're going to build it since nobody wants to fund it. We're, we're going to manage the artwork in our community. We're going to support our community of artists. And, you know, I was recently working in Charlotte and similarly sort of like the newer version of that or the new iteration of that is a project called uh, Roll Up PLT, managed by really just brilliant public art administrator, Jessica Moss, where she's flipping, sort of rehabbing these underutilized homes, creating spaces where artists can craft a, have a fellowship year, where they're in, integrated into the community, they get to learn what the community's issues are, they create projects based on sort of that relationship they, that they're building with the community over time. So um, those are just a few of the things that I'm, that I, I'm looking at that I really love. Thank you. I'll put links for all of those in the show notes so people can take a look at those those projects and ongoing opportunities to see really great public art. How do you suggest measuring equity in, in a public art project or program? Yeah, um, so that kind of leads me to this, this really wonderful fellowship opportunity that I've been fortunate to um, to 
through Forecast Public Art and their Change Lab Fellowship. Um, one of the things that I, I kept hearing, this reoccurring recurring theme from my colleagues is that, hey, we want to commission more artists of color. We want to work with more Black artists, but we don't know how to find them. That led me to create this, you know, Instagram page, Black Monuments, where all I do is just post public artworks <laughs> created by people of African descent. And then that led me to really think about how do we get more public artworks created by Black artists in particular? But I, and I also just focus on Black artists, one, because I'm, I'm Black, but also I just feel like anything that's going to work for Black people also help serve Latinx, Asian, Indian, Indigenous communities as well. I just think those strategies can also are just, you know, applicable as well. So my fellowship sort of proposal is really to survey the field of um, entities that are commissioning art and asking them what their funding structures are, you know, how do they manage their panels, their artist selection panels? How often are they commissioning works by Black artists? And just survey, surveying their existing collection and saying, how many of these other works collection are actually created by Black people and asking them for their success stories. Hopefully what I'll find just in, in this surveying process are trends to say, you know, for example, you know, entities that have, that rely primarily on funding from foundations rather than individuals see more success in commissioning artists of color. For example, I'm trying to tie these outcomes to specific policy decisions that are tied to the overall management of public art programs. So, I'm relying on that sort of, you know, hard data, <laughs> but I also, in, in the process of this fellowship is, um, I want to do one-on-one -on -one interviews with artists, Black, Black artists, just ask them about their experiences to see, you know, how we can improve our relationships with artists, Black artists of color from the standpoint of, you know, a policymaker. Um, because often, you know, we're, we're just so happy to get these opportunities that we'll, we will put up with a lot of things that we shouldn't put up with. I really want to get those both perspectives, the perspectives of, of the funder and the commissioner and the, and the perspective of the artist that has to navigate these policies in order to create these works. Hopefully, by combining those different types of data, I'll be able to see some trends and create best practices for the field that we can use. How much of the class status of the artist are you tracking? That's a great question. You know, I have I have not tracked that in the survey that I've done, but anecdotally what I see, and I kind of feel like this is an issue that we have more on the side of the administrator is that we have these perceptions that the, the projects that we receive that have these big ticket budgets assigned to them feel that you have to have a master's or a terminal degree in the arts in order to execute those projects at that level. and the perception, even even if you'll see artists that are non-white come to the table with advanced degrees, the perception is that you, you still can execute at that level. <laughs> so then you're not getting those commissions. And then because you don't have commissions, you can't say, these are my past projects. So that's an, that's another issue that we have. And when I when we talk about sort of broadening our perspective our sense of aesthetic it's really it's also attacking that bias that only you know white males with masters or mfas or degrees in architecture are able to you know manage a project with a six-figure budget okay. and sometimes i think you know what we'll see also when art when arts organizations are attempting to create equitable strategies and bring in artists of color into this public art process 
know, they'll create these programs that will, you know, relegate these very tiny budgets, these $1,000, $50,000 budgets for murals or things like that, artists of color. And I don't think that that's helpful either. Yeah, it's something that is very frustrating to me, both as a curator and project manager of public art projects, mostly in the private sector, and also as an artist that I'll look up an artist that did a really amazing public art project who might be a person of color. Right. And always it's like, oh, they got an MFA at Yale or RISD right. or MICA or right. UCLA. Like it's always that and it's so frustrating because I'm I'm starting to do more CV research myself just in for my own art career. But um, when I'm looking for artists, there's that, you know, how do you widen the net of who you're going to suggest for a project or um, look at for inspiration for things or for budgets and things like that if we continue to pick people who come out of the same pedigree of um, art institutions. And on the flip side, how do you convince someone to trust somebody with a really large budget if they've never done anything like that before? And so... There's just such right. a gap between the the two to 50K murals yeah. and the million dollar budgets that are being done by the same people who may be people of color, but are, it's, you know, obviously it's like a very small fraction of people at that level who are people of color, but they're, they still, I think, come from the same background of, you know, this. Super you know, schools and these blue yeah. programs. I, I, you know, I tend to think, and this is sort of a conversation that we've been having, is that if an artist doesn't have experience but has an amazing concept, has demonstrated the capacity to create to, to complete a, a project at a high level, give them the opportunity because, you know, me, my as a project manager, my role is to support them. My role is to help them. And I, I feel like we have to sort of just expand the way that we think about what our role is. It's not just managing budgets, it's providing support of all, of all kinds to artists so that they can execute these projects. You know, so whether that looks like pairing them with a fabricator, helping them obtain insurance, which I've done, or helping them partner with a more experienced artist. I, I think that those are great strategies. Um, I've also seen it down where written into the the actual contract is that is a stipulation where you have to work with a local artist. Mm -hmm. That way, they don't provide these programs. They, they have the opportunity to put that project that they've worked on with a more experienced artist on a resume. Mm -hmm. I just think that we have to be more creative and and really broaden the the idea of what our role is as public art administrators, as people you know working in support in the arts and really helping provide capacity building and training support to artists so that we do see more diversity in the field. But also understanding, you know, that they're, you know, one of the things that I, I tell people when they're like, oh, you know, we'd love to find an African-American for this project. You know, there are great programs and that we are in, <laughs> you know, and sometimes even when we come out of those programs, we still don't get the opportunity. So, you know, I don't want to, there's, also just to be this sort of misconception that you're not going to see non-white artists or professionals with advanced degrees or coming out of great programs because you will. Yeah, that's kind of why I asked the class question because I think something you said about like artists showing that they've completed a project at a high level, it seems like sometimes that's like having access to funds to be able to do a personal project at a high level or to do a personal project at all after you get your MFA and instead of getting sucked back into 
you know, the daily grind of just trying to pay your bills and working anywhere for money, art related or not, but not being able to put time and effort into some substantial project to be able to show that you can do a project on your own. And then it kind of becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy of not doing art. Stephanie, that's such a great point. And one of the things, you know, I really hope to address that in my interviews with artists Mm -hmm. is just really understanding what the barriers are that they have had to overcome in order to be successful in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm super curious what what everybody says, and I'll probably ask you once it's once it's. Yeah, out. no, I'm I'm so looking forward to getting completed and sharing the results with everybody because I really do hope that something in there that people can take away to you know create more equitable outcomes. For our what are your thoughts on real estate development and public art? Um, I don't have great thoughts. And only because, only because I have been on a board that was specific to public art and private development. And I don't want to say that that experience is typical for, you know, art and and private development. But I will say it seemed to me that the developers were only interested in having their ideas sort of rubber stamped with some rigorousness in terms of identifying artists, same sort of process to make sure that that is, is done equitably. And that's the same sort of investment and in making sure that the, the project and the artwork is right for the space, but also for the community. Um, and oftentimes I feel like those boards are just sort of rubber stamping whatever it is that developers want to do in order to, there's, there's always a, a sort of a concession and exchange of amenities. And that's on So I, I, I certainly, I just feel like that's such a, a dear thing. I think it's to the benefit of any developer to, of course, art is a great way to attract interest into your project and to ensure that there's traffic by your project. But you also want to maintain a relationship with that community that you're you're building your project in. So investing in local artists, creating a community-based process and selecting that art, that artist I think will create a better situation for the project. But you know, sometimes what I've seen is a developer who is an owner who's wealthy that says, oh, I collect this artist. I want this artist to be on the front of this building. Or, oh, my golf buddy knows <laughs> this artist. Or, oh, I've seen this here. Let's put it right here. And it's just, unfortunately, there are not the same constraints that nonprofit or local arts agencies have with missioning. You know, oftentimes they're free from con- those constraints. And sometimes that can be a good thing, you know, to not have to go through sort of a, a bureaucratic process in order to create work. That way, you know, you can say, hey, I want to make sure that there's an African-American artist for this project, so we're going to do direct select. Sometimes it can be good, but without sort of that expertise on at the developer end, you're not the other way. Yeah, I think all of the, the examples you gave are <laughs> unfortunately right, it's familiar, very right? <laughs> common, and that's part of why I do what I do, because it's just... Yeah. It was so frustrating when I was in-house at a real estate developer and it's just like so random, but it's not random. It's it's exactly what you said. It's someone they collect and they want to right. keep it in their personal collection. So they're exactly. willing to put in that investment for the public piece or yeah, just they happen to know this random person who makes art and it's awesome. You know? So right. it's been interesting to try and push the other direction and also always starting with what is actually going on in this place. Like what what is already here and who can we actually support and cultivate for and something that I've seen that's kind of interesting is just like or what I'd like to get to with my clients and that I I love seeing with other projects in other areas is 
you can fund smaller level things and then build up so that those artists in the community are able to take on the larger project and both sides are more comfortable with it. But on the flip side, I also totally understand, like, I'm not going to take any money from real estate developers ever. And so I, I like, I'm a democratic socialist, like I, I'm like anti-capitalist. And so I, but I also need to make money. So it's just like this weird being stuck in that middle. And I see to your point, like one of the frustrations I've had as an artist in applying for things is that you have to live in a place for a certain amount of time. You have to have a statement of proof of living there. What if you're not on a lease? Like there have been plenty of times where I just, I don't have anything that shows that I live somewhere or I haven't lived there long enough, or I don't meet these random, they're not random, but they're credentials that have been passed down that I think sometimes we're intentionally trying to keep certain people out of being able to make art in the in the area. So when private funders are willing to just put up the money and they don't, they don't really care how it happens, if somebody can go in and make it happen in a more equitable way, I think that's good. It's just, I agree with you, that we need to have more policies that actually make sure that people are doing that. Yeah. and. And I understand it because, you know, bringing the art on site, that's the fun thing. You know, like if if I'm a real estate developer, that's the one thing that I do want to have my hand in, right? Mm -hmm. But I I just feel like you always need to have experts at the table (laughs) and and a great art advisor or just a community member being a part of those conversations and those decisions is really helpful. Because the other thing too is that the public is not going to make the distinction between this is art and, and private property, and this is art for the public. They're just going to see art outdoors and assume that maybe either the city or the county, you know, managed our process when they didn't. So I, I just feel like it's always best to, you know, you, you want, always want to meet your, your own organizational client goals. But, you know, if it's, if it's work that has to interface with the public, whether or not they're your customer or not, it's just it's considerate, it's the appropriate and smart thing to do. You know, make sure that, that, that it's a, a cohesive part of a broader landscape. Definitely. Are you a real estate developer looking for a unique amenity for your site? Get our free guide, 10 Tips for Commissioning a Site-Specific Artwork at our website, distillcreative.com. How did you start Amewa Fine Art? When I came out of grad school, I finally landed on like what I wanted to do professionally. And that was manage art collections for businesses, for individuals, for corporations. And so my end goal, like I just felt like the last thing that I would do after working for other people was to create my own business, my own practice. So even when I was employed by other people, I was still sort of sort of setting the stage for that, you know, so I, I started an LLC, I gave it a name, <laughs> and, um, you know, there's this book by, uh, I believe it's Robert Ferris Thompson, and it's called Flash of the Spirit, and he's talking about the, the African traditions in contemporary African-American art, and that term is an a, a artistic term that has a relationship to Black aesthetics, so that's why I selected that name. Even in my professional work, I always want to consider Black artists or aesthetics that are non-Western, non-traditional, because um, I feel like that's, that is how you're going to get a great collection, is, is considering multicultural voices. So anyway, started an LLC, didn't expect really to have to activate it <laughs> at all. 
if I got opportunities to write, if I got, you know, um, sort of honorariums, I would, I just thought that that would be a vehicle to pass it through there. And then with, with COVID, <laughs> I found myself, you know, sort of self-employed and having these increasing opportunities to work on my own. And it's really been wonderful. So I've been able to continue to do project management for Silty Airport just through my own business. And I also, I write my fellowship and, and other opportunities working with individual clients. I, I helped a, a good friend of mine acquire some work and frame it, which is just such a delight. So I'm, all, I'm able to do all of that through my business now. So I'm just hoping to just get more opportunities to do strategic planning, more project management opportunities. And also sort of work with individual public artists, just to share sort of what I know in terms of, if you wanted a commission, this is the way to do it. If you're trying to do a project, this is how you should do it. And not, and I don't necessarily want to do that as a part of my practice, but I just, I want to work with more artists that are interested in breaking into this field and just, you know, provide them with best practices and ideas and, and support, you know, even if it's just a phone call. I'm really, really happy with, with the way things are going. <laughs> that sounds great. It's, it's amazing that you've just kind of, I mean, you've been doing this work for a long time, but to be able to launch and do it on your own terms as your own business is really awesome. So, yeah, you know, job. and I, I hope that it's helpful. I just feel like, you know, our field, we just need more, more expertise, more expertise that's not tied to an organization that's free to just work with different clients and share best practices. And that, you know, that has, you know, a different perspective, you know, as an African-American woman that has worked in public art, you know, sort of rarefied air. There are a few of us across the country in the, in the space and there's not enough work for all of us. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities, you know, and I just I just feel like it's great work to be doing and a great service that we provide to our community. How do you work with artists currently? Yeah, well, so I, I work with artists as a project manager. So essentially what I do is when we bring an artist on board to create work and they're under contract, and even before they're under contract, I'm helping to make sure that they're, that the process that selects that brings them on board is equitable. I make sure that they have the things that they need. And then when they're on a contract, I'm managing, you know, I review their budgets. I give them the autonomy to create their own budgets, but I just make sure that that's on track and that there's enough contingency. I manage the communication between the artist and the client and the, and the commissioning body, but also the contractor, the, the engineers, the, the construction team, the contractor team, subcontractors, make sure that the artist has all the information that they need in order to do work that is going to be appropriate for the site. That's cool site. <laughs> so nothing fails, nothing, you know, everything, all the engineering, all the sketches, all the designs are approved. And then taking all of those steps from the concept to their schematic design, their final design, their their final drawings, all of that is approved and routed through the right people, through the clients and the people that are, also, that are ultimately the funders or whatever the commissioning body is. Providing all of that information from the artist to the very sort of uh, disparate teams and make sure all of the approvals are, are done and are successful and that the artist has what they need to be able to move into fabrication and ultimately installation. And you know, doing that, particularly for an airport, that it, that will include a lot of 
security clearances and badges and, and things like that. So it complicates things, but it, it makes it just so, so much more exciting to just be able to work in a dynamic space like that. It's fun. <laughs> it I think is, yeah. those parts of things are fun, even though it's like a lot of problem solving. A lot of problem solving, a lot of fire putting, outing. <laughs> And a lot of like, you have to really just speak different languages. You have to be able to talk to the artists and talk to the guys with the construction hats on. And, you know, sometimes it's like nine day. Yeah, I've, I'm always kind of surprised by how rare it is for someone to have those two skills because it's something that I know like people who I talk to do or who I work with often do, like obviously you do. And, um, but then when I talk to artists, sometimes they're like, oh my gosh, Thank goodness you were there for this thing. And it's like, what? It was just, that's just, you just have to yeah. deal with lots of different personalities and backgrounds. But then on the flip side, it's like knowing like, okay, this person is probably going to react to this way, or this person doesn't have any idea what I'm talking about. Exactly. Um, so I can't just be like, blah, 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 blah. And then expect them to, yeah. Or clearly this person, because of the bureaucracy of the site is not aware of what's going on so you have to explain everything but it's a challenge but it's, it's such a fun challenge it really is and i think you know keeping in mind that everybody has the same goal of just making something successful and making the landscape the site whatever look good the artist wants to look good the architect wants to look good everybody has the same goal they just might speak different language and and have different ideas but getting people on that same page is really, um, it's fulfilling. And you probably get to make a lot of people's days happy when it's done, when you see like the end goal. And, you know, even if it's someone who just walked by that day, especially if it's at somewhere where like an airport where there's so many people going by. It, you know, it's so funny, you know, a lot of the projects that I'm working on are like five years in the making. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I get a lot less of those moments and more of the like the headache moments, or <laughs> moments you know because these are it's, it's a, it takes long range long-term planning to get this done so the gratification is is so much delayed with this if you're into instant gratification this is not the space for you but yeah. <laughs> it, it is it is really nice when you see start to see stuff come out of the shop see it being fabricated and when it's installed and dedicated it's it's amazing yeah i want to go see some of the projects that you've worked on once they're completed oh, yeah give it another couple of years yeah. <laughs> another couple of years there's so many projects that i'm like okay well in 2024 people are going to be really excited yeah. it is an interesting thing where you know especially with social media it's like what do you share if it's a spreadsheet that you've been working on for a long time or just right. you know it's so much of it is not tangible which kind of goes back to also public art that isn't actually tangible as well as another right example of that, I guess. I have so many more questions, but I'm I'm so happy with being able to talk to you and ask. Yes, you it's, it's so great to speak with you too, Stephanie. I, you know, I really appreciate this conversation and, and thank you for your time and just your asking the right questions and just, you know, any opportunity to talk about this work is I love. So thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. And I think people are really going to enjoy hearing from your perspective because we haven't actually had a lot of art administrators besides when I talk about what I'm doing. And I think it's super important to know, like, there are really great people doing this work. There's yeah, but we're so behind the scenes. You'll never, you never know. And 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 that's great. You know, I always want the the artist and the client like this is your thing. I just help facilitate it and. 
this isn't my project. <laughs> How can our listeners find you online? So my website is amewafineart.com, um, A-M-E-W-A fineart.com. And on Instagram, you can find me at Black Monument on Instagram. And if you're interested in discovering works by African-American designers and architects in public spaces, make sure you follow that page. Thank you so much for everything you're working on. And thank you again for being a guest and I'll be following you on the internet. Awesome. It's so nice to meet you, Stephanie. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of First Coat. If you like this podcast, please leave a review. Make sure to subscribe to the First Coat podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at First Coat Podcast or at Distill Creative. First Coat is a production of my company, Distill Creative. Check us out at distillcreative.com.